today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The new PC government says it will bring in major changes to social assistance, starting with reducing a planned increase in support rates and canceling a pilot project that provided payments to low-income people in certain communities, including here in Hamilton. Uh, We heard from Lisa McLeod yesterday. We have a clip that we'll play in a second or two. She's the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services, saying that the previous liberal government left behind a patchwork system that the progressive conservatives will replace. She says the governing Tories will set a 100-day deadline to come up with a new social assistance program that will help people break the cycle of poverty and get back in the workforce. Let's hear from Lisa McLeod. While we're working on our new plan, on compassionate grounds, we're going to raise rates by 1.5% across the board to help those with the cost of living. We will endeavor in the next 100 days to fix some of the systemic problems that we have seen in our social assistance programs, but also uh, in the poverty reduction strategy of the previous government, so that we can put more money in, the, in people's pockets. And where they're able is to get them back into the workforce. Well, it remains to be seen what the government is going to do. The proof will certainly be in the pudding. Let's bring on our first guest on the program today. Her name is Trish Hennessy. She's the director with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here in Ontario and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Trish, how are you? Um, I'm okay. Uh, you know, wish I was on the show to talk about something a little happier than this announcement, but thanks for having me. Definitely. Thanks for uh, sharing uh, some of your time with us. Uh, I guess, as I was saying, it, it remains to be seen what the PC government's new social assistance program is going to look like. They say they're going to set a 100-day deadline to come up with a new program. But what they announced yesterday appears to be a step backwards. Um, I I think that's a good way to talk about it. Uh, What struck me most about yesterday's announcement is how the minister tried to frame cuts to the poor as an act of compassion. I I don't know how the minister can can claim that cutting plans, social assistance, rate increases, and a basic income pilot for Ontario's poorest, people who were being... Um, you know, helped out of poverty in your own community in Hamilton, how that can be cast as compassionate is completely incomprehensible to me. Uh, I mean, not only is this government breaking its promise to let the basic income pilot project complete its course, because that's what it said it would do during the election campaign. In fact, it's the only time the government ever even talked about poverty during the election campaign. They said, well, we'll, we'll let that basic income pilot uh, go ahead. Uh, so they're breaking that that promise without campaigning for that, and now, um, you know, casting uh, Ontario's uh, poorest into now 99 days of uh, uncertainty. And you know, there's there's one thing about when you're poor, you have no room, no margin for error. You need certainty. So to suddenly, you know, in the middle of the game, find out that everything is changing, and you and you don't even know exactly in what ways 99 days from now. That's far from compassionate. The framing of her wording was, uh, I'm not sure amusing was was the word, but certainly it had me smirking, thinking that, uh, okay, you're going to raise the Ontario Works and ODSP rates by 1.5%, but you just cut it by 3%. So really it's a 1.5% reduction. 
Well, um, so first of all, what it means is that social assistance rates are not going to keep up with inflation, with the cost of living. And especially if you're poor, that's important because your landlord isn't going to cut you a break on the rent because the government just cut your your social assistance check. Um, But it's not the only thing that got lost yesterday. Um, So they're they're also um, reducing the amount of money that social assistance um, recipients can keep in their pockets while working. So, you know, on the one hand, the minister said, you know, the best social program is a job. Uh, The system was actually letting people keep a little bit more of their money and so that they could start getting some some labor attachment. And so that's getting undone. Um, The definition of spouse is different for if you're on social assistance than for the rest of us. So um, if you and I live with somebody... After we've been living together for three years, that's when the government considers us common-law spouses. For social assistance people, it's after three months and they start getting penalized. So it's even more than just cutting the social assistance rate that's at stake here. Yesterday, Lisa McLeod said, uh, quote, spending more money on a broken program wasn't going to help anyone. In terms of the basic income pilot project that also got rolled into yesterday's announcement, I mean, that was going to provide us with some answers, was it not? Yeah, I mean, the the last time Canada actually had a basic income pilot project was uh, in the 1970s in Manitoba. It was called the Mincome Project. Uh, And what we learned from that project is um, by having a basic income, some of the poorest people were able to look for a better job, not just the next job, right? Because if you're poor and you've got to bounce from job to job, you don't have time to like think that through. Um, some people, you know, went to school to get an education uh, to be able to be be more attractive on the labor market. Um, and there were also savings in terms of there were fewer emergency room hospital visits, um, fewer car accidents, and um, uh, domestic violence reporting. And so these are the sort of things that we were really looking forward to seeing uh, as a result of the pilot basic. Um, income pilot, but already we were getting evidence that it was making a real difference in people's lives. Like, there's this one woman who's on the pilot project and she suffers from debilitating arthritis. She was able to buy a walker. <laughs> I mean, that's how, uh, that's how the system right now lacks compassion, that you can't even afford a walker, but basic income program allowed her to do that. Um, uh, you know, people talked about not running out of groceries in the, by the middle of the month. So this is going to have a real impact on your community. Um, the minute those cuts come through, you're going to see more people at your food bank. Talking to Trish Hennessy, director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here in the province of Ontario. Um, McLeod yesterday sidestepped a question, you kind of referenced it earlier, sidestepped a question about a possible return to a work-for-welfare program that was, we saw that implemented by the Mike Harris government in the 90s. Do you think the government is at least considering that as part of their new social assistance program? I mean, it's really anybody's guess. Uh, you know, we, they didn't script what they were what they announced yesterday, and so it's difficult to know what they'll do. Um, uh, you know, I I would be concerned if they return to the Mike Harris um, approach to uh, to dealing with poverty in Ontario. Um, you know, some some of your listeners may remember. Uh, in the mid 1990s, it was a very dark time for the poor in Ontario. The government. Um, really uh, did like a character assassination um, on on the poor, and they slashed 
their their uh, their their social assistance rates, um, and uh, and made it sound as as though you have it it was the problem of poverty was individual and not systemic. We've moved a lot a long way beyond that, but you know we've seen the movie of that Mike Harris approach to just trying to punish the poor. Um, and uh, my case in point here is let's not forget Kimberly Rogers. Kimberly Rogers was um, receiving welfare benefits um, under the Harris uh, government. Uh, she was getting 520 a month and paying 450 a month in rent. And she was also getting student loans because she wanted to become a, a social services worker. So, so she went back to her community college to get out of the poverty trap. And then suddenly the government changed the rules. So this sounds familiar because suddenly the rules are changing here now. Um, and it made it illegal to be on social assistance and um, to, to get a student loan to go back to school. So they charged her with welfare fraud and um, deducted all the loan money from her monthly check, leaving her with $18 after paying her rent. And to make matters worse, they put her under house arrest, which means she wasn't able to leave her apartment. And sadly, she committed suicide. That's what I'm talking about when I say it was a very dark time in Ontario's history. And I hope we would learn from that uh, and never go back to that approach to social assistance ever again. That's obviously a, a horrific story. Uh, what should a new social assistance program look like? What are the must-haves? The main thing is income adequacy. The, the rates have to be adequate enough to take people to the poverty line. Uh, right now, if, if you're on uh, social assistance, say you're a single person uh, on Ontario Works, uh, the poverty gap, the gap between what they're, what they're earning through social assistance and the poverty line through the low-income measure is 59%. And if you're a family, um, it, the poverty gap is 30 to 40%. So, so you know, I would say already the, the system lacks compassion. We are actually enforcing people into deep poverty, deep entrenched poverty, and that can get really hard to get out of. You can end up um, getting into a real trap. So making sure that the rates are adequate enough and then, and then making sure that we have enough support so that you can go back to school and get an education in this knowledge economy you know, that we're in now. Uh, making sure that there are incentives for you to be able to work part-time to start getting experience because that's so important. When you're, when you're looking for a job, they're looking on your resume and saying, what's your experience? Uh, so there are a number of things, of things that can happen here, but also supports for people who um, are living with disabilities. They actually need a lot of different supports like access to nutritious food, which you can't afford when um, the rates are so low. There is a roadmap that uh, a, a, a bunch of um, uh, experts and some people with lived experience formed working committees over the last several years, and there's a written roadmap for the government to implement, um, and if they implemented it in 99 days, um, that we would reduce poverty in this province. But I'm not so sure that this government is going to read that roadmap. I guess we'll sit back and wait. Uh, Trish, we're plumb out of time. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're a big fan of crossword puzzles, Sudoku, other games that sharpen your brain, you'll want to pay attention to this story. A study out of Western Ontario 
may have you rethinking your approach to playing these games. If you've been spending hours upon hours upon hours on brain training games trying to stay sharp. The study suggests that all that training has basically zero impact. Dr. Bobby Stoyanowski is the lead author and research scientist at the Owen Lab at Western University's Brain and Mind Institute, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Dr. Stoyanowski, thanks for joining us today. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Maybe we'll start with the easiest and most obvious question. Why study this field and in, in in brain training games? I know they're very popular, but why would you focus on this? That's a great question. Uh, for starters, this is a billion-dollar industry, and it's only growing. There are new companies sprouting almost on a monthly basis. And um, current estimates have millions upon millions of people engaging in brain training. And what's really important is that these companies claim that by participating in online brain training, that is, playing games, that that is going to enhance your cognition. It's going to make you smarter. They claim that it'll increase your IQ. And so this would have, this could have really important ramifications. And so if you're going to make really bold claims like that, it's important that that's grounded in good science. So how did your study work? So what we did is we brought people in from uh, the university and recruited people online to um, complete approximately 20 days of brain training where they trained a little bit, a little bit every single day on uh, two different tasks that target working memory. And that's, so that's the specific cognitive system that we're interested in. And we wanted to see whether or not that period of training resulted in improvements on your performance on other but very similar tests that also measure working memory. So uh, they were playing basically the, the modern version of Simon? They were playing um, a game called the token search task, where you have to keep track of a moving uh, ball behind squares. Okay, so how did they do? So they did really well on, on both the token search task, which was one of the, the games they trained on. They got really, really good at that task. They also trained on a second task called the dual end back, where you have to remember sequences of sounds and numbers. And, they got, and this test has actually been used very commonly in the brain training literature. And they also got very, very good at that test. But independent or despite that improvement, they showed no improvements on, on other measures of working memory. They didn't, in fact, get smarter. So how did you test whether or not the, the brain training games helped or, or hindered them in, in another task? What was the following task to determine whether their IQ went up or not? That's a great question. So what we did was select two other working memory tests that rely on the same brain processes. And we did this intentionally because we wanted to maximize the likelihood of finding any evidence for brain training. So we trained and tested on tests that were really, really similar. And so if there's any evidence for brain training, surely we would see it in this context, but we didn't. So basically, your, your study found that, uh, you know, the, the, the brain's capacity to excel at a task and, and boost their IQ, for lack of a better term, there's a plateau there. There's, there's a ceiling there. Well, so the claim from the paper is, uh, says that if you're going to engage in brain training, so this idea that you're going to complete this game for a number of hours over a long period of time, 
that that's going to make you smarter, and that's not the case. So it doesn't say whether or not there are other ways that, uh, or other means to help your cognition, because there is good science to suggest that there are alternatives. But when you, but if you use brain training with the intent to get smarter, it isn't going to do that. Our guest uh, this hour is Dr. Bobby Stoyanowski, lead author and research scientist at the Owen Lab at Western University's Brain and Mind Institute, a study out of Western uh, basically saying that if you've been spending hours on brain training games trying to stay sharp, you're basically wasting your time. Is 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 that basically the uh, prognosis of this study, or, or is there a little bit of benefit in terms of playing some of these games? That's That's a great question. So if you enjoy these games and there's inherent um, value in you playing these games, then that's completely valuable, and you can continue to do that. The problem is, if you're choosing to play these games with the expectation that it's going to make you smarter, because if you have that expectation, there is no science, and we've just shown, that it isn't going to make you smarter. It doesn't even make you perform better on very, very similar tests. Did any of the study participants feel that they were getting smarter? So if you ask participants about their experience in the test, they, they, they knew that they were getting better on the training task. And so they felt that um, they were getting smarter in that particular context. So on the test they were training on, they got very, very good. But they didn't, that improvement didn't uh, transfer to other aspects of cognition. Right. So going into this, what was your thesis? Were you expecting to find some impact or, or no impact on, on playing these games? So we expected to find no impact, and that's uh, in part because the lab's been interested in this question uh, about brain training and uh, the effects of cognition more generally. Um, and uh, an earlier study that we did um, tested brain training in another context. So we didn't expect brain training to work, but what we did was design our study to maximize the likelihood of seeing brain training by taking a targeted training approach, that is, um, a lot of brain training apps and programs online will train on different aspects of cognition, attention, memory, executive functioning, so on and so forth. In our study, we targeted specifically working memory. And so we've, um, we hypothesized that if you're going to see any benefits to brain training, this is the context under which we would see it. So to that end, do you, do you uh, plan to expand the study to these other portions of the brain? Yes. We actually have a couple of other studies um, undergoing right now. And one is we're moving this from um, beyond the laboratory setting into the real world setting. And that is, um, instead of getting people to, to do the tests online uh, at, within the laboratory, we're probing the effects of brain training uh, across the population. So we're getting um, thousands and thousands of people to participate in the study, and we're going to track whether or not individuals who use different brain training programs that may or may not rely on different and uh, specific cognitive systems. And some of these people may have been brain training for not just 20 days, but for a few years. And this will provide a population-level evaluation of whether there is any evidence for brain training. Dr. Bobby Stoyanowski is the lead author and research scientist at the Owen Lab at Western University's Brain and Mind Institute for talking about his study that focused on brain training games and basically found that they have zero impact in terms of boosting your IQ. 
are there ways to train your brain to boost your IQ, to improve memory? What, what should we be doing? That's, that's a wonderful question. There are. There are a number of really good scientifically validated means to um, help cognition. And this is, it's really important to consider these because often people are looking for a magic bullet or a quick solution to improve cognition, but doing so is really difficult. So the things that do work are things like um, having a healthy sleep hygiene, a good diet, engaging in regular exercise, uh, socializing with friends. These are the sorts of things that are gonna help your cognition. Could reading be on that list too? Absolutely. Uh, reading engages in um, a lot of the mechanisms that are important for maintaining um, healthy cognition. And that, that type of activity is much more valuable than brain training. Uh, last question for you. Do you have a timeline on when you want to take this study to uh, a higher level or, 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 or expand upon it? So we're currently doing that right now. Uh, one is the population level assessment of cognition, which is near completion, actually. And then we have another study where we're examining what happens to the brain when you brain train uh, two different programs. That is, we're tracking the activity in your brain over a 20-day period while you're engaging in brain training and identifying what are, what are the limitations, what are the reasons why the brain doesn't seem to get better at other tests despite huge improvements on the thing you trained on. Interesting. Sounds like the uh, subjects involved in that are um, going to be feeling good at some times, but at other times when you, uh, you know, share some uh, statistical evidence on, on no improvement, they might be, <laughs> they might be disgruntled. Yeah, well, so I think this is, um, I think this is a, a positive thing, and I, and I think people should be looking at this as a positive thing because yeah. there's a lot of money that um, is is being put into this industry, and, and and like you said, companies or individuals are paying uh, often large sums of money with the expectation that they're going to get um, improved cognition or become smarter, and there's just no evidence for that. So instead of playing an hour or two of brain training in, in the evening or when you have some free time, it's much better to call a friend, go for a walk, read a book, get some exercise. These things are much more valuable. Interesting stuff. Dr. Stoyanovsky, thanks for the, the insight today, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The 61st annual Canusa Games, a friendly competition between Hamilton and Flint, Michigan, is coming up next weekend, not this coming weekend, but the a weekend after the long weekend, August 10th to 12th to be exact, in Hamilton at venues across the city. And joining us in studio is Greg Mills. He's the president of Canusa Games Hamilton. Thanks for coming in. Uh, thank you very much. Get Rick. up close to that microphone so uh, we can hear you. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you. Um, so let's talk about Canusa Games. I mean, th- there's probably a lot of people in the community that have heard it, that have read about it, that kind of know it exists, but they don't, uh, they don't entirely know what exactly it is other than a sporting event. Maybe give us some insight on Canusa. Right. Well, it's, uh, it's an event modeled around the Olympics. Uh, this year in particular, we have 12 sports. Uh, we have athletes coming from the city of Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. which is our sister city. Yep. Uh, and we run these competitions on Friday evening and Saturday morning and into Saturday afternoon. Um, again, yeah, we've been doing this for 61 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, started in 1958 between us and Flint. Uh, Flint actually started what they refer to as their Olympian Games in 1957. And then they decided they wanted to go a step further. So in 1958, uh, we partnered with them and we traveled to Flint um, in that first year and uh, had a great time. Uh, I think they had close to 200 athletes from each side and 
six or seven sports, um, and it's grown significantly since mm-hmm. then. Uh, you may not know the answers to these questions, but do you know who won the first competition? Oh, I cannot remember, okay. but I think if I had to, my memory serves me correctly, I think it was Flint. Yeah. And do you know why they chose Hamilton or why Hamilton kind of came up as, the, you know, the sister city in, in that regard? Uh, well, Flint went to the AAU in that area of the country okay. in Michigan. And and in Michigan, they had some friends in Ontario and in Hamilton in hmm. particular. So the two AAUs kind of got together and said Hamilton would be a good fit. Yeah. Um, so it's that's, been a great fit. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that, that, and that was the genesis of that. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Well, 61 years is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, something has been done right over six-plus decades. Why does it work so well? Well, um, the group of people that that run it. Uh, in Hamilton, it's a group of volunteers. Uh, in Flint, uh, it's a group of people uh, associated with the school boards and some volunteers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the people that really drive it. Uh, we want to do this for the kids. The experiences that the kids take from this are fantastic, and and that's what we try and build on each each year. Yeah. Um, again, our motto is experience the friendship, and and that's what kind of drives us to do why we do this. And that motto is living proof in uh, competitors who have been in the Canusa Games and have retained those lifelong friendships with people in in Flint and, and vice versa. Exactly. You'll hear a lot of stories about. Um, Kids who competed together when they were, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old, yeah. staying friends, going to each other's weddings, uh, you know, visiting each other for the birth of children and right. things like that. So it's it, incredible. It really is. Um, talk about the different sports that are being offered uh, by Canusa. Well, this year we have 12 sports. Uh, and if I can get them off the top of my head, there's <laughs> volleyball, basketball, soccer, uh, golf. Uh, and I believe those have been running for the entire 61 years. Wow. And there's also, there's skeet shooting, uh, there's pickleball this year, there's track and field, there's swimming, there is darts, and there is ice hockey. Okay. And I think that might be the 12. Basketball? Did you mention basketball? I think uh, did. There is basketball, yeah. if I didn't mention it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and basketball is one of those sports, I think it's the basketball, that uh, Flint has basically dominated from... From year one. They have, yeah. 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 It's unfortunate. They get some great players coming. Now, I know this year we've got some really good players playing as well, so we'll see. We'll mm-hmm. see. The last couple of years there have been some close matches, but yeah, they generally handle the basketball yeah. side of things. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the mayor's competition because this uh, has been a wonderful addition to Canusa, and, uh, I- including this year. Yeah, this year uh, the sport and it, the host mayor gets to pick, right. and so Mayor Eisenberger's picked pickleball. So we'll be playing pickleball. Uh, well, he will be playing pickleball against a representative from Flint. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be the mayor, it could be someone else, depending on her schedule. Right. Uh, and it's going to be nine thirty on the Saturday morning up at the Ancaster Rotary Club. Yeah, this is August eleventh, and pickleball. I was telling our listeners earlier on in the show, it's basically tennis. Racquetball, badminton, I think, is in there. It's really a combination of all these sports. But yeah, it totally is. I think the the court is might be the size of a badminton court, maybe mm-hmm. a bit wider. Uh, yeah, it's a racket sport. It's a, a short little 
tennis racket, for yeah, yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah, so. it's it's fun to watch though. I've watched a bit of it on on YouTube. I haven't seen it live, but I might uh, I might catch uh, the mayor and uh, and the Flint rep uh, going at it. Right. Uh, with with any event like this, it's obviously heavily based on volunteers. Uh, the organizing committees do a phenomenal job, but you you also need athletes to come out, and you need billets, especially when you're hosting the games, to house individuals that are coming from Flint. Maybe we'll start with uh, the athletes. Do we need more athletes here in Hamilton? We can definitely use some more athletes, especially in the sports of track and field. And, I mean, anyone can run, right? Right, yeah. So we can definitely use some track and field um, participants, some basketball, boys and girls, some of the younger ages in basketball, um, some youth for golf. We have a group of adults. Uh, we could use some more youth golfers for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the other one was soccer. We need some some participants for soccer, boys and girls, okay. and anyone under the age of eighteen, pretty much. Uh, billets. We need billets uh, again. This is a vital component, uh, especially when you're hosting the game. It is. That's what kind of the games are built around. Is again the friendship part of it. So whenever you travel and you're seventeen or under, you're staying with one of your competitors. Right. Uh, and oftentimes we will have. Uh, uh, discrepancy between the number of athletes for a specific team. So Flint may send us 12 athletes, but the Hamilton team only has seven or eight athletes. Right. So there is times where, yeah, we need to look into the community. And often, well, every time we've needed it, the city opens its doors mm-hmm. to us. We, we've we never had a situation where we haven't been able to, you know, house a child in someone else's yeah. house. We've got a little over a week to go. Uh, the excitement building, not only amongst the organizers, but the community. Do you feel that buzz? Absolutely. I see uh, I see the news pieces. Um, obviously, our office is really busy right now with lots of phone calls, lots mm-hmm. of emails coming in. People are still asking us about whether they can come and, and participate. So. Uh, lots of on uh, lots of details online at canusagames.com. And, and this is a, a, an event, this is a games that is not just housed under one roof. I mean, this pretty much spread across the city. Correct. There is, and I've got all the venues here, um, there's 12 specific venues. I know basketball is at Mohawk College. Uh, volleyball, uh, girls volleyball will be at Bishop Tonus. Uh, the soccer and the baseball and the track and field are all up at the Mohawk Sports Complex, mm-hmm. so Bernie Arbor Stadium, yeah. um, and the soccer fields and the, the track there right. as well. the four pad there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a phenomenal event. Again, if you want to uh, volunteer, if you want to be a billet, if you want to get your son or daughter or, or grandchild in on the fun, uh, go online to canusagames.com. Now, the all-time series, uh, Hamilton is trailing 30-26. to 26. There's been four ties as well. So we got some work to do. We do. We do. We're down by four. Uh, we're in Hamilton, so if there's a tie, it goes to the visiting team. So we're kind of behind the eight ball this year. <laughs> but we just need to win some sports. Yeah. We'll, so we'll need to win seven of the, the 12 sports. D- do the kids uh, even know the all-time series? Do they even care about they, that? They might not. Yeah. Um, we certainly don't stress that. Obviously, it's still a competition, right? Um, so we're definitely trying to win, but we don't stress that a lot yeah. of the time. So. It's been phenomenal, though. You know, with sixty years gone by, the difference is just four, four games. It, four it points, has been whatever. very close. Yeah. yeah, 
Markle to see. Greg, thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, good luck with the games. I'll be emceeing not only the opening but the closing ceremonies, which is always fun, uh, especially the opening with the you know the torch coming in. You have Hamilton Police with the you know the the flag display. Right. Uh, you know, host of guest speakers, all the athletes in at Bernie Arbor Stadium. It's a lot of fun. Right. I'm, we're looking forward to it. Yep. Should be a good time. Uh, again, August 10th to the 12th across the city of Hamilton. And, and again, you can go to canusagames.com for a host of other details. Uh, good luck with the games, and uh, we'll see you in about a week. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.